This is Porter Block. I'm a New York-based musician, and I also am a huge music fan. This podcast explores music from every angle, and I'll be talking to people who've made the business of music the focus of their life. Welcome to In a State. This is Porter Block. I had the opportunity to meet with Dan Wilson in the 12th floor offices of BMG in downtown New York City. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Dan is a successful singer-songwriter and performer. His success has been built on his commitment to his craft, and his artistry has been sought after from the likes of Adele to Weezer. That you're settled down at you. I got a chance to speak to Dan about his latest project, Recovered, which is almost entirely comprised of songs recorded successfully by other artists. Well, the Recovered album was germinated or was, you know, the first spark happened when I was having a conversation with my friend Karen Glauber. And she and she said, you need to make an album of the songs that you've written with and for other people. Because that would be a great thing for you to do. And you've written so many good songs for other people. But you can't just do a lazy busker record that's, you know, MTV Unplugged, stripped down acoustic guitar. It's got to have a sonic stamp. It's got to have an idea, a sonic idea. And so I took that idea home with me, her, her challenge to me. And I thought about it. And I made a little list at that time in 2009 of what the songs would be. And I looked at the list and I just felt it was short of hefty big songs that I could that that would be like about making staking a claim you didn't you felt you didn't have the catalog that was ready for it well I had a catalog but I needed some more things that were worthy of the claims I would like to make about my songs so I had to wait to work with Adele and I got a song with John Legend and a couple of Taylor Swift things and a whole bunch of other things and finally in Maybe six years later, I kind of had what I needed, and I approached Mike Viola about producing a record for me. And Mike and I didn't really know which album we were going to make together. We just knew we were going to make something, and he was going to produce me. And once it became obvious that I wanted to do Recovered Next, then Mike had a lot of strong opinions about how to do it, how to make it unified, how to make it work. I asked Dan if writing for other artists got easier over time. There might have been a time... When I was self-conscious about my songwriting and my songs, there might have been a time when I second-guessed myself in the writing of songs, but it's been quite a while since I ever did. i kind of been much more fueled by enthusiasm and, like, a sense that I'm on to something. You know, oh, we are so close, you know, oh, we are so on to something. We are so just around the corner from something so great right now. If you got a song with great bones, a kind of dramatic shape to it that makes sense and it's short enough, then it's going to sound good about 20 different ways. You can make a whole bunch of dumb decisions in the production and it's still going to sound great. Like some of the best records, it, they're great because the song is great. If you listen too hard to the drums, it's, it often sounds terrible. Once you've done 
all that labor of making sure that the song itself is just so killer. You can just tell when someone's ruining it. It's much easier. Oh, you're ruining this. Don't do that. That's dumb. Like, if the if the conception is not clear, then it won't reject bad ideas as well. But if the conception is super clear, then the, the wrong ideas are just plainly, obviously wrong. I heard a story that Dan and songwriter-producer Mike Viola challenged each other to write a song with only two chords. I wanted to know if those types of constraints helped or hurt the creative process. I think the thing about constraints, like, let's say we're trying to, to do something that has some sort of emotional impact on people with a song. But at the same time, you're trying to draw them into a kind of game that you're playing. Like a fun, weird game of meaning and shape, you know, that the two are always kind of in conflict with each other in some way. If you, so if you get excited about a constraint, then that's a good constraint. It's going to make you have more fun playing just the game. You know, if the constraint is we're only going to use two chords, well, how can we keep this interesting? Wow, can we really, even can we write a bridge with those same two chords? Wow, that was fun. You know, it's like it keeps your brain engaged and then the listener's going to be on the same drugs as you almost by like osmosis. So if, if, if you're playing a fascinating game with the words, then they're going to have a fascinating time. Tell me a little bit about the baby bird syndrome, because I, you talk uh-huh. about that, and I, I think it's fascinating. What I mean by quoting that baby bird syndrome, that, that phrase, it's like if someone wants to collaborate, then they're going to be able to own whatever song that results, if it's good. But if they don't want to collaborate and they're doing it for wrong reasons, then any song that you come up with is going to have the sort of taint of having been touched by you know other people, and, and then the, the artist isn't going to like that song. It's less about the song or even the songwriting process and just about the artist's relationship with their work. Is this about their validity as a person? Is this a proof that they can do everything themselves and be awesome? Is their art um, here to establish them as some kind of bona fide in the world? Or do they exist separately from their art and their art is this amazing thing that they make and they can participate in it but it's also not their ego you know in the art so some people just have a much more kind of tangled relationship to their art and it's hard to collaborate with someone like that Dan was first recognized internationally in the late 90s as the front man and one of the principal songwriters in the massively successful Semisonic closing time open all the doors and let you out into the Dan has written about some of the problems and challenges that fame and success on the scale that Semisonic achieved. When Semisonic was really happening, there were a lot of people who hated us just because that's what a lot of people do when something is loved. There's always going to be a bunch of other people that are like, I hate that, you know, and then they can't help it. They're just, it's a knee-jerk reaction. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. And, uh... So we got a lot of criticism and a lot of hatred just because other people liked us. And I really had to just remember that. Uh, The public can be very strange to deal with. I'll just put it that way. But none of that holds a candle to the level of hatred and negativity that the chicks dealt with. I'm not ready to make nice I'm not ready to back down I'm still mad as hell And I don't have time to go around and round and I mean, round That was like epic That was a level of hatred and negativity that I can't even, I don't even know I guess if you're in a, a deeply abusive relationship with a parent When the entire public is like calling for you to be killed I mean it just feels, it, it, I think that's a really intense place to be When 
just to, when you were collaborating with them, did that weigh on you? Did she, I mean, that was obviously you knew what was going on. Did she show it and did that kind of propel you into the mindset you needed to, to write that song? Well, I got a, a lot of my perspective about the whole thing from the chicks when we were working together. And I think one of the reasons that the song took the shape it did was because I was really trying to work with the material at hand. One of the things we discussed a lot was how their friends and loved ones were, were trying to advise them to just chill out, move on, you know, just make a statement and put this out of your life and just go on, go back to being like the princesses of country, you know? They would get this advice, very well-meaning, and they just, they just couldn't take that advice. And so, not ready to make nice takes almost the shape of someone saying to a friend who's in a well-meaning way advising them to just chill out and forgive and forget about it and move on and just go back to your successful life the song takes the shape of someone saying i can't do that i just can't bring myself to do that and and so it's not necessarily an exploration of what it feels like to be attacked or threatened or silenced it's much more an exploration of what it feels like to say yeah i know how to do that thing you're advising me to do i just can't do it Dan frequently travels to Nashville, Music City. It's a songwriting mecca of sorts. Nashville was the one place in America where the lore of songwriting was being passed along. Pretty early on in my co-writing experience, I, I realized that I needed to go, to go down to Nashville. A song can be about anything About the second grade Or the TV news and my first couple trips down there, I kind of thought I was supposed to go down there and be country, but I got quickly retrained because they don't need a bunch of guys from Minnesota to come down and try to be country. That's like, it doesn't make any sense at all. Rick Rubin. Rick seems to have this amazing zen of kind of boiling it all down to the essentials. Is there something about songwriting and record production that is um, thinning out the details? Rick... You know, he, he his LL Cool J credit was reducer on those LL Cool J records. And he was the reducer of those albums because he would jokingly say his that was his job, you know, is just to remove things until it sounded good. That's hard to do. When we worked on Free Life together, we did a couple different things. He, he, he The, the note-taking process was like almost two years long just on the production of the songs. And try a version of this with a string quartet. Try a version of this with, you know, what about another version with blah, blah. Let's A, B the two versions now. Let's Like everything is like, make another alternate version so that we can sit and listen to the two and say which one we like better. Then we don't have to have any philosophy, really. We can just say, well, I like the first one better than the second. I asked Dan if he had a preference of writing over performing. When I first started writing a lot of songs, it was... I guess I went through two bursts of time where I wrote a lot of songs. One was in my early 20s, and I had a band, and we had no material. So I had to write a whole bunch of songs. I would see what those songs did live in front of people. And then I'd go back and write a different song to see if I could get something that would make a better thing happen live in front of people. That's interesting. So it got into so, the show. I mean... Uh, no, it didn't get into... Let me finish. It didn't go into the... It didn't get into the show. The songs were literally a catalyst for a live gig. So it wasn't like, oh, now I have to perform these, but they're already finished. You know, inherent in the song, in the making of the song, you're trying to make something that will create a spark during a live performance. Some musicians enjoy the labor-intensive process of making records. Others like going on the road and playing live. I want to know which one Dan preferred. Record making. I don't think I understood a lot about it until Free Life 
you know, 2005. After going through that apprenticeship with Rick Rubin, and he had me mix the record with uh, Brad Kern, my live mixer, and he tortured us to make it better. And there was actually a stretch when when I was mixing some things alone, and he tortured me then to make those things sound better. And he really had a lot of great guidance and like teaching that he did to me to, to so I could figure out how people made records sound the way they do. I, it was a mystery to me before then. So you eventually decoded the record making? A little more. It it's still little... sort of a mystery, but it's a bit more, less of a mystery. Let's take a little trip down where we used to go. It's way beyond the strip, a place they call your soul. We'll sit down for a while and let the evening roll. In a state. This is a song you wrote called Yoko which is also an extraordinary piece of music. I don't know whether you you co-wrote that or not. I just wrote it myself. I've never heard quite the take and the perspective that that song took. Yoko What did he see in you? Literally, I just... I put it online as a as a, a drawing too. on YouTube that had a song to it. It's yeah. kind of weird because it's like me saying I wish that I had been your boyfriend back then. You know, I just think of her as like this epic figure who's like kind of large. Describe her hat again in that. Oh, on a plane with a wide chapeau, <laughs> flying the world alone. Yeah, I have this vision of her as like this sort of. Uh, legendary character who's like so much bigger than life that she you know like she has to struggle to come down to earth and be with normal humans over the seas like distance don't matter i hope you enjoyed the discussion that i had with dan wilson i want to thank him for coming by in state this is porter block broadcasting from new york city you can listen to my music on iTunes or Spotify or go to www.teammensch.com. If you're listening, you're in a state.